Callie's been doing a lot of research um, over the last several weeks um, into adoption processes. Uh, we knew before we got married that we wanted adoption to be a part of our journey as a family. Uh, I've known that since I lived in Ethiopia, that I hoped to one day um, be able to, to father some children in that place that I had grown to love um, dreamed it in such a way that I'd already done some picking of names for what those Ethiopian children would be named. And sometimes several months ago, Callie and I talked about it a little more and we said, hey, if, uh, if we're really going to do this, we probably should get started because believe it or not, we're not getting any younger. Um, so we started looking into the process and what that meant. And it's put Callie on this journey of lots of exploration of what does it mean and what does it look like to adopt? And if we continue to look international, what's that process and how do we get there? And should we look at other options? Should we consider other options? So lots of reading and lots of research and lots of looking. We found out it's going to be a whole lot more difficult than we ever imagined. We've also found out it's going to be a whole lot difficult today than it would have been if we'd done it five years ago when we married. Um, the process keeps getting more and more difficult and more and more complicated. So we're praying through what that means and what happens. And along the way, it means that there are different articles and different things that we run across. And last week, Callie mentioned to me an article that she had seen. I had seen the article, but I hadn't paid as much attention as she had. And I went back to find that same article and, and read that article. And in this article is um, both some of the beauty and the, the difficulty uh, of what it means for us to continue to walk through this process. It's a little bit startling. Um, at, the same time I, at the same time, eye-opening. It was an article about a young boy named Diego. Diego's a foster child, and he was 14 when his grandmother, who had kept him up to that point, decided she'd had enough and she couldn't take care of him anymore. So she turned him over uh, to foster services to find a new home for Diego at 14. Over the next little bit, he walked through a, a multitude of situations. He was in some shelters for a time. He was in some homes kind of on and off. Several things broke up bad or, or they were all temporary from one place to the next, to the next, to the next. And the story says that eventually Diego and a biological brother ended up placed in the home of a pastor. This pastor had six grown children of his own, biological children, and also had four teenage foster boys living with him when Diego and his brother came to join him. Um, I think he might have been a little bit crazy. Um, is that right, Dick? That many kids is just crazy, isn't it? Um, but he welcomed Diego and his brother into his home, and he did it with this word of welcome. This is what he said. He said, I just want you to know when you come in here, I'm going to love you like my own son. Now, these boys tested that commitment over and over and over again. And the story says that they most significantly tested this pastor's commitment when they accidentally burned down his house. That's the startling part of the idea of what it might mean to bring other children into our home. So that night, the pastor takes the boys and he leaves them at the church for the night. He says, hey, you need to hang out here for the night. I need to go about figuring out what next steps are and what we do. And that night, the pastor was gone trying to figure out what to do now that his house had burnt to the ground. And the next morning, he came back to the church and he picked up the boys. He took them to Walmart and he bought them all clothes to wear to school because everything they owned had burnt up in the house. That Again, they I don't know if I said the word accidentally, but the story says more than once. They accidentally burnt the house down. Um, 
So he took them to Walmart, he bought some clothes, he took them home, or he took them to school, and he dropped them off at school, functioning as if everything was a very normal day. And for these boys, there was even a bit of normalcy in this also, because this was not the first time that they'd been dropped off at school with the expectation that before the day ended, a social worker would come and get them and take them to the new place that they would live, because they had been relocated, or because they had broken rules, or because something had happened and it was time for them to find a new space. So they waited all day and they expected the social worker to show up and to come and to move them to what would be the next location. So much so that the story says that they got to the end of the day and they were hiding in the locker room because they didn't want to come out. They knew that who would meet them outside would be a social worker. And finally the coach said, boys, get out. You have to leave. And when they came out the doors, the pastor was there. And he got them and he took them to the new house that he had found that the entire family could stay in for this time. And the boys were amazed. They were amazed that they were still wanted. It was Diego's story that they were telling. He was amazed that he wasn't being kicked out. He was amazed that he was still welcome. And it was in that moment that the pastor reminded them what he had told them when they came in. I'm going to love you like my own son. Diego had been told that he was loved before, but it never meant this. It had never been this faithful. It had never been this committed. Love had never been this unwavering in the past. As I read that article this week, my mind was brought back to the passage that we read from Mark chapter 1. My mind kept coming back to that place as the article and the text weaved themselves together in my mind as I thought about the two of them. In Mark 1, we see this interesting synopsis of of stories that are told more fully in other gospel writings. The other authors tell more about what's going on. They give more details that we can grab hold of. In fact, if I were going to preach about any one of these specific stories that Mark kind of synthesizes right here, I wouldn't pick this passage to preach it from. But we're using the text that we're using because, as I told you last week, we're going to let the lectionary guide the text that we use leading up to Easter. The lectionary, this this guide of readings that guide much of the global church in what they use week in and week out in worship. This opportunity gives us the chance to embrace unity with the incredibly diverse global church. It's the reason that we're here for this time and that we find ourselves in this passage Those of you that have a Lenten guide, I told you several times last week, we're in cycle B. If you still want one of those, we have some more copies of that guide, and you're welcome to take one. Uh, We ordered enough for about one per family, so if you didn't get one or if you need another, if somehow the dog ate it this week or something crazy happened, we do have a few more. Um, If you need to take one, please do, because we want you to be reading along with us. It recommended this passage, so we're in this passage. But if I were just choosing, I would choose a writer that tells more about the 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert. Because that story is incredibly powerful on its own with all of the details and the intricacies. If I were just choosing, I would choose a text that tells us more about this first situation where Jesus comes to meet John the baptizer. And the situation that happens between the two of them and the interaction that takes place. And all of the details that we don't find in this story. 
I don't think this synopsis does justice to the stories on their own. So it makes me wonder, why did Mark choose to take these stories and to synthesize each of them down into a sentence or two? And to to cram them in together as if they just kind of weaved in together. What was happening in that? And the interesting thing of being pushed into this text is that it forces me to look more deeply and to ask some questions. What is it that's going on here? What is it that we can learn here? What is it that we can see in this? There's an interesting reality that this is how Mark introduces readers to Jesus. There's no mention of the birth story in the beginning of Mark's gospel. This is our introduction to Jesus. This is the first glimpse that we get of God in the flesh. This is where we find out that Mark believed that Jesus was someone special, that Jesus was something unique, that there was something sacred in him. Mark saw this as the perfect lead off to make sure that readers understood that Mark believed that this man is the Christ. Jesus was the promised Messiah that they had been waiting for. As Jesus, or as Mark told this story, as he wrote this down, he, he made this, this full connection that Jesus has with humanity because none of these stories on their own are necessarily unique. Lots of people were being baptized. Lots of spiritual leaders made journeys out into the desert to have this time to be alone or this time to reflect. Lots of rabbis were teaching people about God and the kingdom of God. And yet, Mark, as he told these stories, connected each of them and put something extraordinary in them. In just a sentence or two, there was this extraordinary glimpse that was allowing us to recognize that although Jesus was fully connected with humanity, he also had a unique connection with God. starts with the baptism story and Mark gives us no explanation why Jesus came to John and was baptized in what John was clearly calling and teaching a baptism of repentance. No explanation. As to why Jesus would do that, why Jesus needed that. He doesn't show any of the hesitation that we see from John in other writings. There's just this very simple interaction between the two of them. John was baptizing people and Jesus showed up and wanted to be baptized. That's it. That that was the story. And it was this kind of simple interaction. But there was this beautiful side story that took place. And the way that Mark tells it, only Jesus saw this vision that took place. Only Jesus heard these words. Now, other gospel writers give us understanding that maybe it happened differently. But according to Mark, that's all that happened. Only Jesus saw this. Only Jesus heard and experienced this. As Jesus saw the divide between heaven, which was the place of God. It doesn't necessarily mean up in the sky. It just means heaven the place of God and earth the place of humanity and Jesus saw as these these two places these two spaces the divide between them was torn open it was ripped apart now some of our translations use the word opened but the greek word used here tells us that the word opened is way too soft a word The divide between the two was crushed. It was shattered. It was destroyed. And no longer was there anything that divided the place of God from the place of man. These two were brought together and Jesus watched as this took place. And then it tells us that he experienced the Holy Spirit coming down on him. It says like a dove. 
And then Mark tells us that Jesus heard these words spoken over him, these words from the Father. The end of verse 11 says, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. And then the very next movement that Mark makes is that the same Holy Spirit that came down like a dove, the same Holy Spirit, the same voice that speaks these words over God, we're told that the Holy Spirit then compelled or drove or pushed. Again, it's a very forceful word in the Greek. It's not just merely invited or kind of gave a hint that this might be a good idea. Jesus felt pushed to go from where he was and to leave and go into the wilderness, to walk into a dangerous and lonely land. To go to the place where he would do battle with Satan. Where he would be forced to decide between the things of God and the things of the world. Where he would be forced to choose between this divine calling that he had and the human longings that were also inside of him. And I don't know about you, but as I read the the one or two sentences about the baptism, and then I transition into the one or two sentences about the desert, I don't see this second movement as loving in any way. It seems hard. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem warranted. A little bit of me reads it and uh, looks at this loving father and thinks, man, this is... This is just almost mean. And as I wrestle with my own understandings or my own responses of what's happening there, it brings me to a place that that I ask questions of myself if I've somehow misunderstood who God is. Maybe misunderstood what love is. The reality is probably both of those. But most significantly here, I think that I've misunderstood what it means to be loved by God. I think that many of us, as we collide with the most difficult experiences in life, are brought to a place that we wonder if God truly loves us. I think we come to a place sometimes that we ask questions about how this suffering that we experience, how this difficulty that we walk through could be the work of a loving God. I think we put all of these kind of, not contingencies, but these constrictions on God of what God is supposed to do and how God is supposed to work. That if God was truly loving, that God would make life easy for us. If God was truly loving, then at least God would make life easier for those who are Christ followers than those who aren't. At the very least, at the very least, if God is truly loving, then God would take the difficulties that we walk through and would make sure that we understood why we had to do this. 
Or would make sure that these difficulties were in some way celebrated. Because we fully understood or fully saw the ways in which they were turned on their heads. And now that they got turned upside down, they get to be this wonderful thing for so many other people. It doesn't change that our heart hurt, but at least we can look at the ramifications and go, Well, God was doing something great and that's why it had to happen. And maybe I'm the only one that's ever felt this way. But I feel like probably more of us look at our suffering sometimes and we're brought back to this place of going... I don't understand how this lines up with the idea that God loves me. Or that God loves anyone for that matter. How does this make sense? What do I do with this? How do I wrestle with this? And yet as we look at Mark's story, we see as the same Holy Spirit who settled on Jesus then called him into the desert... We watch as the story goes from the beauty of this baptism and this incredible interaction into the difficulty and the struggling and the suffering of the wilderness. And then the third movement that takes place is we see the, the, the suffering, the struggle, the temptation of the desert, and then Jesus going and preaching. And I think the words here are special in that it doesn't just say he went and preached, but it says that he went and preached the good news. Baptism, wilderness, good news. And at least in the text... We never see Jesus ask any questions about whether or not God loved him. In the text, we never see Jesus wonder why this happened. We never see Jesus ask if this was fair. Now, yes, this is Jesus. This is God in the flesh. And some of you are very quickly going, yeah, but that's not the same. That's different. Uh, Yes, I agree. It is different. But I also believe with all of my heart that if the scriptures tell us that Jesus went in the wilderness and in that place he was tempted, then sin, the offerings of Satan were an option for Jesus. I think that's the only way for it to actually be temptation. Otherwise, it was just this this dramatic experience where Jesus goes out with Satan and they kind of pretend that something's happening and maybe Jesus could trip over some kind of difficulty. But of course, Jesus is going to be all right because, I mean, come on, Jesus is God. I can't understand the text that way. And there are people who would say that that's exactly what took place. It's not possible for Jesus to go out into the wilderness and sin. I don't believe that remotely is the case. I believe that this experience that Jesus had in the desert with with Satan was incredibly difficult. I believe that Jesus had to literally choose between the ways of God and his own human longings. I think that that's the only way for him to have been fully human and fully divine. Otherwise, he's fully divine, but he's not fully human. There had to be this wrestling between the two. And Jesus had to wrestle. So how did he stay faithful? 
How, even though he is God in the flesh, did he in all of his humanity stay faithful? How did he trust the love of God in his suffering? How did he walk away from the suffering? And the very next step was to preach the good news of God. And what is it that Mark's trying to get at it? Taking these three stories and bringing them together and going, Look, it's the Messiah. We look at a story like this and we don't get the full explanation. We have to do a little bit of stretching, a little bit of guessing, a little bit of trying to come up with, okay, here's, here's what's possibly going on. So I want to give you a couple ideas at what I think is going on, at what, at what Mark is trying to help show us in these moments. The first is this. I think we see the fullness of love in suffering. Think back to Diego's story. He'd been told that he was loved before, right? But it was on his darkest day. It was in his most difficult experience. It's when he was most careless. And this pastor showed back up that he fully experienced what it meant to be loved. It was because he'd walked through this suffering and on the other side of suffering was love that had promised it would never leave. It would never go anywhere. Church, as, as we experience difficulty, as we experience suffering, I think the love of God is most clearly shown to us when we are forced to rely on it in our most difficult experiences. Suffering isn't the proof that God doesn't love us or love people. It's the chance for God to prove God's love for us. That as we walk through suffering, no matter what we do, no matter who we are, no matter how deeply we've hurt another person or how deeply we have been hurt by another person, we find out through every bit of that God loves us. Now, we may never understand why it happened. We may never fully grasp what was taking place or what was going on, but we have the opportunity to know in this suffering that we are deeply loved by God. As we look at the story, we do have to be a little bit careful. Careful in remembering that this story, these words that were spoken were words to Jesus. Mark's primary purpose here was not to put together a text that teaches us what it means to be more faithful. The primary purpose was for Mark to show the readers, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the one that you've waited for. This is the one that you've looked for. And yet N.T. Wright makes this statement. He says, Jesus is the Messiah and the Messiah represents his people. What is true of him is true of them. So the words that the father spoke over Jesus extend out to us. They are reminders that God loves us. That we, hear this, hear this. Have you got this? We bring God, great joy. A second thing that I think is crucial in the story that's going on in this story is because of God's great love for us. Because of the joy that God finds in us, God longs to find time to be alone with us. 
And it's in these moments alone that God is most able to speak his love for us. It's in solitude, it's in silence that we're most able to hear the Holy Spirit speak to our soul and remind us that we are loved. Friends, today, perhaps more than any time in history... We need to find times of silence and solitude with God. Life is so busy. It is nonstop. It is running all the time. It is so demanding. We have phones that are ringing and dinging all through the day and night that demand our attention, that demand for us to look at them. Social media is constantly calling our attention. There's something we need to interact with, we need to do, we need to experience. 24-hour news is telling us that there's something happening all the time and we need to be aware. We need to have an opinion. We need to be scared of something that has recently taken place somewhere in the world. Advertising is all the time telling us that we aren't enough, that we could be more, that we need more, that we deserve more. Everything in life has become overwhelming. Work is no longer a 40-hour-a-week experience, but now it's 50 or 60 or 70 hours a week. Bills have become so overwhelming that families have to have two and three and sometimes four jobs just to be able to figure out how to pay them all. Parenting is so overwhelming because the demands on our children and their time and their heart and their mind and their soul is so demanding. How in the world do we get it done? Life is so hard. We are overwhelmed. We are overworked. We are overexerted. We're oversaturated. We're overintoxicated. We're overmedicated. We're over pick your poison. Because we could go on and on and on with the reality of all of the ways in which we have allowed life to overwhelm us. And I think we need to hear it is time to stop the carousel. Stop the merry-go-round. Stop the reality that everything is spinning out of control and we're not sure if we'll ever slow it down again. We have to pull away, especially as the people of God. We have to find rest and Sabbath. We have to find silence and solitude with the Father. We have to get away from the noise so that we can hear the voice of God remind us, as it does in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, You are my dearly loved child, and you bring me great joy. If we could hear those words, if we actually believed that those words are true, I wonder how it would change our experience as we walk through suffering. I wonder how Jesus hearing these words before he walked into the battle with Satan allowed him to interact in that experience differently. The fact that, that he walked in with these great words of affirmation that, that before Jesus went into the wilderness, he was reminded, you are loved. You bring me great joy. In the Lenten guide that we have, 
Ruth Haley Barton tells us and reminds us that Lent finds its structure around Jesus' experience of the 40 days in the wilderness. It reminds us that this season of Lent, these 40 days that began Wednesday with Ash Wednesday and reach all the way to Easter Sunday, are a time for us to go away with God. They're an opportunity for us to fast, to pray, and yes, even to do battle with Satan. They're a time for us to prepare for ministry. They're a time for us to prepare for Easter. These days are special days. And with them... This text reminds us that we are sent into this time of preparation with the precious words that the Holy Spirit spoke over Jesus. These words of affirmation. Mark 1 verse 11. You are my dearly loved son. Notice I've added words up there. You are my dearly loved daughter. And you bring me great joy. Great is thy faithfulness. I want to encourage you to find time this week. I want to encourage you to find time during this Lenten season to be alone with the Father. To be alone in the presence of Jesus who longs to be with you. To be alone so that the Holy Spirit can overwhelm you with the affirmation that comes in these words. You are dearly loved and you... You bring the creator of the universe great joy. We need solitude to be able to hear these words. We have to find a new way of living. If we'll ever come to the place that we exist, this Connected with Christ. Will you pray with me? Oh, precious Jesus, our Savior. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your commitment to come and to be the Christ, the Messiah, God in the flesh among us. We thank you for your sacrifice to come and dwell in suffering. And at the same time, we thank you for the chance that we have to share in the words of affirmation that the Father spoke over you. The words of love and hope, of joy, of promise 
that God spoke over you before these moments. And we thank you for sharing that spot with us. For inviting us in to come and dwell with you as Messiah. And to hear the same words that were spoken over you, spoken over us. To receive the same promises, the same beautiful words that we are loved. That we too bring you great joy. God, give us courage to find time alone with you. It will be crucial that we find it, that we make it, that we take hold of it, because none of our life will allow us to just accidentally end up at the place of silence and solitude. Work demands too much. Life demands too much. Children and spouses and neighbors and community and the news and social media and all of these things that are in our life demand too much that we will accidentally run into solitude. So give us courage to choose it. To choose it when it's hard, to choose it when it looks different, to choose it when everything says, no, you can't do that. Give me courage to choose time alone with you. And in those moments, speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.